Yeah, change is coming today. You're going to change. And with God's help, you and I can change for the better. So let's ask. Change starts today. And today we really need to ask because we're going to talk today about humility. That's an attitude of servanthood, a realistic perception of ourselves, freedom from the need to be the center of the universe. And humility is something that we will have to pursue by indirection. Can't become humble just by trying really, really hard to be humble. It can be difficult to find great role models of humility. You know, behind me in this office, there's a picture of Winston Churchill, and he's a great exemplar to me of courage and bravery and a resilient fighting spirit. Not so much humility. Churchill famously said of one of his political opponents, Clement Attlee, one time, he is a modest little man with much to be modest about. Nobody ever accused Churchill of being a modest little man. He also said Attlee was a sheep in sheep's clothing. Attlee was not an intimidating guy. Churchill thought of himself quite differently. Violet Asquith, when she was a young woman in British society, met him at a society dinner one time. She was sitting next to him. She said for about half the dinner, he ignored her. And then finally, when he turned to her, he started by asking her how old she was. And she told him, and he said, I am 32 already. Older than anybody else who counts, though. Curse ruthless time. Curse our mortality. How cruelly short is the allotted span for all we must cram into it. We are worms. We are all worms. And then he said, but I do believe I am a glowworm. So Churchill, not a great example of humility. He had a sound moral compass and other virtues that kept his ego from getting too toxic. But we're going to have to look to other places. And what I want to talk about today is a book by David Brooks. Wonderful book as we're thinking together about character and character strengths and who we become. Uh, David Brooks's book is called The Road to Character. In the beginning of the book, he says he's been thinking a lot about two different kinds of virtues. Resume virtues, how bright you are, how strong your will is, how talented, how gifted, how successful you might be able to become resume virtues, and then eulogy virtues. The things that people say to us when they remember us upon our passing. And I was very struck by that this week. Yesterday, Nancy and I listened to the uh, live stream of Tim Keller's memorial service from New York City. And it was held in St. Patrick's Cathedral. His impact was such, so many people were there that that's where they had to hold it. But it was very striking. Nothing was said about Tim's accomplishments, although they were remarkable. His impact on the church world was maybe as deep as anybody's, particularly over the last decade or two. Nothing was said about his gifts, although they were massive. His ability to learn and to communicate and to write were extraordinary. When he was talked about at all, what was talked about was his character, particularly his humility. And mostly he wasn't even talked about. Mostly the talk was about God and about the Jesus to whom he pointed. So David Brooks writes about the centrality of eulogy virtues and this contrast, and he says he's been helped in turn by rabbinic writing that was inspired by the fact that in Genesis, there are two different accounts, as you may know, of the creation story. And the rabbi writes about the idea of an Adam one and an Adam two. Adam one, is uh, oriented more around achieving and success and building and doing. And Adam, too, wants to embody moral qualities. So Brooks writes this. 
uh, Adam One lives by a straightforward utilitarian logic. It's the logic of economics. Input leads to output. Effort leads to reward. Practice makes perfect. Maximize utility. Impress the world. Adam Two lives by an inverse logic. It's a moral logic, not an economic one. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender in order to win. You have to die in order to live. And Brooks goes on to talk about how in our society, increasingly we are marked by what he calls the culture of the big me. Now, that doesn't mean that yesterday's society was better. There was racism and sexism and lots of stuff that none of us would want to go back to. But he says there is this shift that's largely going on in our culture, and it's not hard to find data to document it. For example, in 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors if they considered themselves to be a very important person. At that point, 1950, 12% said yes. The same question was asked 55 years later. This time, it wasn't 12% who considered themselves very important. It was 80%. Psychologists have a thing called the narcissism test. They read people's statements and ask if the statements apply to them, like, I like to be the center of attention. I show off to get a chance because I'm extraordinary. Somebody should write a biography about me. The medium narcissism score has written 30% in the last two decades. 93% of young people score higher than the middle score just 20 years ago. The largest gains have been in the number of people who agree with the statements, I am an extraordinary person and I love to look at my body. People much more than in the past desire to pursue fame. Nearly twice as many, he writes, say that they would rather be a celebrity's personal assistant, for example, Justin Bieber's, than the president of Harvard. Though, Brooks writes, to be fair, I'm pretty sure the president of Harvard would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes something that is often not understood about Christianity. People often associate Christianity and Christian morality with uh, very judgmental attitudes about sexuality. And so Lewis notes that throughout history, most Christian thinkers have said that pride is the number one sin, the most dangerous sin. Yes, why would that be? And it's because pride is essentially competitive. We will say about people that they are proud of being rich or smart or strong or pretty, but that's not really true. We are proud of being richer or stronger or prettier or smarter. Pride, in a way that other sins don't, lust or greed or so on, sets us up against everybody in many ways. Pride is um, the anti-love. One of the difficulties with pride is it is so dangerous to recognize in ourselves. If I'm stealing or lying or committing adultery, there's a good chance that I know about it. But pride gets right into the heart of our religious faith. Jesus' story about the parable and I mean the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee is consumed with pride. I thank God that I'm not like and is utterly blind to it. In fact, Lewis says one of the great tests of pride is if I find myself thinking that I am in any way better than anybody else, then I can be pretty confident it is the devil and not God that is at work in me. It's pride that provides maybe the strongest warning in Scripture that that is 
stated in the Old Testament, but repeated in multiple places in the New Testament, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is not arbitrary. It's intrinsic to the nature of pride. You can't do anything with a proud person because they refuse. It is a moral law of the universe. It's not just God. Addiction opposes the pride, proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're an addict, if you'll humble yourself, get a sponsor, do what your sponsor says, go to a bunch of meetings, start working the steps, uh, acknowledge your powerlessness, surrender your will. If you will humble, you will be given grace to be sober, otherwise not. Wisdom opposes pride, but gives grace to the humble. Friendship, very hard to find a narcissist with a lot of really good friends. Learning. I was surfing quite recently with my unpaid surf instructor, and he said to me, you are violating the golden rule of surfing. I don't even know there was a golden rule of surfing. And it was when you're paddling to catch a wave, you must look back at the wave, because if you don't, the wave can do something to you. And you must humble yourself before the power wave. And you must look back, because there could be another surfer on that wave that you're about to cut off. That's the golden rule. Now, key question for today is, are you taking a look at your life on a regular basis in humility? Brooks writes about a friend of his who every evening when he goes to bed looks back over the day and just seeks to look for uh, where were my flaws at work? Where were the problems in my character most evident? And what can I learn? God, how can I grow in the midst of those flaws so that I can be a little different, do a little moral, change a little bit on this next day? So let me ask you right now. Think about this last day. Yesterday, if it's early in the morning, or today, if it's towards the end of your day-to-day, and ask, where have my character flaws been at work? What did I say that was wrong? Where did my thoughts go wrong? Where did I not obey the golden rule, Jesus' golden rule, the real golden rule? And if you can't think of a single thing, either you have achieved daily perfection, um, or there's a humility issue here. And you need to begin to work on a daily basis to ask God, God, would you help me? And God will. Now, this takes humility too. And this brings us back to Jesus, who is the ultimate role model for humility. I was thinking and reading what Brooks wrote about Adam 1 and Adam 2 and resume virtues and eulogy virtues, about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, what Jesus is up to. You know, when we're learning about the pursuit of character. This is not a self-improvement project. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Who's the last Adam? Well, that would be Jesus. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. Adam 1, Adam 2. Paul here says that Jesus is the last Adam. There's a line of people uh, who are uh, tormented by pride. We are consumed by it. We are destroyed by it. Jesus came to be the end of that line. He is the last Adam. When he died on the cross, he was saying, change has come and that's over. Last Adam, second man. He's the beginning. He's the prototype of a new version of humanity. And he will help me. God knows I need it. 
watching and listening to that service for Tim yesterday, I thought about how many people are there who have been wonderful exemplars of humility and nobody knows about their memorial service, but God does. That's greatness. That's the second Adam. Change is coming today. So ask God, help me to see my flaws. Help me to see my mistakes. Help me to see where pride is coming through. And then today, engage in one act of menial service. Do somebody a favor. Be interrupted. Run an errand. Pause, sweep something out. It's, it's second Adam time. Hey, it's Tim. I'm the producer here at Become New. I wanted to let you know, if you'd like more resources or teaching from John, you can find it at our website, becomenew.com. Also, if you'd like to receive a text alert or the daily email that goes along with each video, let us know at becomenew.com slash subscribe. Lastly, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. There's a group of us who meet each weekday, Monday through Friday, to pray over requests that are sent in from listeners. And so you can text us your prayer requests at the number 855-888-0444. We'll catch you next time.